Revelation chapter 2. Dear Ephesus, this is the part of Revelation that is... There's a few things here and there that might be a little little more difficult to interpret, some different opinions, but for the most part, this is the easy section of Revelation. This is the section that most of us are familiar with. Um, I, let me remind you, Revelation is a letter. He's writing a letter, and in this letter, what he's doing is he is writing this and probably sending the whole book to all of these churches, and possibly with the intention of passing it along to some other churches. Um, it, I, I could very easily see the church in Laodicea sending this letter, this book, on to the church at Colossae just down the road a few miles for them to read as well. I could very easily see some of these letters making the rounds not only in this church but also along the trade routes all over the region. I could very easily see this being passed on from church to church to church um, in part because so much of this applies to believers through all ages. And that's what's so, that's what's so great about uh, the Bible. God said, I could just write it for your help, but I'm going to write something that will last past you. I'm going to write something that will last throughout the ages. Uh, and so, so when God puts his words into his people and they write them down as, as the revelation or as whatever book you happen to be reading in this Bible, you are reading... In one sense, you're reading something that was written for somebody a long, long time ago, but man, it still hits home today, and it always will. That's that's one of the fascinating things about this Bible, but it, we come today to the letter in Ephesus, and uh, if you'll pull up the map, Nicole, I, I took that map and I made it much bigger, so it's a little bit easier to see um, the regions there. Um, where these churches are. If you'll remember, John is on the island of Patmos down here. And he's writing these letters to the churches. All seven of these churches are along the trade route. Right here is Ephesus. That's going to be our first letter. And then if you just go around, Smyrna, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum, he probably came back this way to Philadelphia and then down to Laodicea. You've got your seven churches. They're all along the major highways and byways, uh, as, as some preachers would say. And principal among them, is the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was the place in Asia. It wasn't the capital. It wasn't where the provincial offices were held. It wasn't where the local governor sat. But it was the most prominent city in the region. If you think of New York City in modern day times as being Rome, a city that size, you might think of Ephesus as a Chicago. It's a big city or a Boston. Huge city, lots of people, very important but not quite the biggest, but pretty far up there. In fact, Ephesus had many things. Uh, the theater in Ephesus, that's the next slide, is the, the, is a copy of Rome. Um, modern day, this is what it looks like. These are the ruins. But the theater would have held, held all sorts of plays and all sorts of things going on. I could almost picture Paul coming to this kind of place to gather a crowd together to preach the gospel of Jesus and, and probably starting a riot. Because if you'll remember, Paul started riots just about everywhere he went, including in Ephesus. But perhaps the best known thing in the city of Ephesus was the temple of Artemis. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Go ahead and show that next slide, Nicole. That's what an artist believes that this temple looked like. It would have been foreboding to stand at the base of, almost like a modern-day college football stadium. 
I'll speak from my contemporary experience. Uh, it is, it would have astounded so much so that it's one of the ancient wonders of the ancient world. This is along the lines of the hanging gardens in Babylon and the great pyramids in Egypt. It, this is the city that was, this was the place to be. This was a very important place. It would have been right on the coast in that day. Today it's a few miles inland because of silt deposits, but then it would have been right on the coast. There would have been tons of people talking. There would have been tons of people sharing ideas. Lots of stuff coming in from all over the world as it made its way across the Mediterranean into the port of Ephesus and out toward Asia and and beyond. Stuff coming from Asia would have gone through Ephesus on its way to Greece and Rome and many of parts of northern Africa and, and various other places. Ephesus was a big city. And it was big not only in size, but in culture. This would have been one of the happening places, one of the places to be. And the letter that we find written to Ephesus is a letter of both encouragement and warning. Look with me in Revelation chapter 2. Sorry. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but this I have against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let me hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Pray with me. Father, as we read these words to Ephesus, may we be reminded that they apply to us today. Some things that we will see in these seven churches are things we struggle with. We'll find ourselves mirrored among these believers nearly 2,000 years ago. We'll find ourselves mirrored in their experiences, in their scenarios, in circumstances, We'll find our problems prevalent among them. Our hurts. Our struggles. Father, may we find what they found in these words. Your words. May we hear your voice speaking through the ages to us as we open your scripture. And may we take heed to the warnings. Take to heart the encouragements. And put into action the commands that we find. In Jesus' name we pray. These are, church, these are letters to churches written long ago, but they are still applicable to us. Some people think that these churches represent ages, that there would have been an age of Ephesus where, where, where the church in general had these problems and there would have been an age of each church to follow, an age of Smyrna, an age of Pergamum, and, and so on and so forth until you get to our day, which would be obviously the day of Laodicea by this theory. Um, I'm not so inclined to believe that just because 
there are too many people that find too many ways to mess up for us all to fit in one category at a time. Um, But I do think there is some truth to the fact that sometimes churches, especially in certain areas, tend to have certain problems. And so as we're looking through these churches, ask yourself, how well does this describe us? Do the things that Christ uh, uh, promotes and, and gives them credit for, do those describe us? Are we living in that sort of way? Do the things that Christ condemns and says, you've got to change, you've got to get rid of this, are those things that describe us? Do we need to repent of certain sins that we find in these churches? As we're reading these churches, don't just look at this as a church long ago. Look for what it will say to us today. And don't look at a church down the road. Don't look at a church that's you got nothing to do with. Don't say those other churches over there are like that. Uh, keep it close to home because as I tell my boys, you got enough problems of your own to deal with <laughs> to worry about anybody else. And trust me, that's coming from one with experience with enough problems to deal with. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, we said earlier the word angel is the same as the word for messenger. And so there's different theories about this. Um, I think he's writing to a key leader in the church in Ephesus. And he's, and he's telling them, hey, I want you to read this. I think almost everybody agrees these are not just for one person to read. These are for the whole church. But there's probably someone who's going to stand up in church and say, we got this letter from John. Let me read to you what it says. Right? And so I'm thinking John is writing to that guy. He's writing to probably the pastoral type. That, that elder, that leader who is, who is shaping the church and who is investing in people and, and, and driving the gospel home in folks' lives. It's that sort of leader that he's writing to, I believe. It's possible he's writing to spiritual beings. It's possible that he's writing to something like that. But it just, to me, that makes the most sense. So that's, that's how, that's my working theory. But to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. How does he describe Christ? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, where have we seen that before? Just a few verses ago. Look back in chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice of one speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of seven of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his waist. And he goes on to continue to... to to further describe him. And then in verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. This is a vision of Christ. He's saying, I have seen this Jesus. And now let me tell you what that Jesus has said. I have seen the Lord Christ among the golden lampstands with the seven stars in his right hand. And let me tell you what he has to say to you. This speaks to him in both a protective sort of role and in a present sort of role. He holds the seven stars, those seven messengers, those seven angels of the churches. They're in his hand. He holds them tight. He has them protected. He's not going to let them go. But he's also among the seven lampstands walking in present with his people. He's not a God who's aloof far off that's looking down on us like like some sort of overseeing God? Yes, he does oversee. But he oversees in the midst. He comes into the middle. 
When Jesus says we're two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. Part of what he's saying is God's presence is with us and it's with us in a different sort of way when we are together. And here we have him saying the same thing. This is the one who's walking among the lampstands. He is in with his churches, in the midst of it. Do you remember in the story of the three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, bow down to my statue. Everybody else bows. These three guys are standing there, sticking out like a sore thumb. He's, he comes, they, they bring him to the king, and he's furious. He's all mad, but he says, you know what? In my great patience, and you know somebody who's putting themselves up, he's, he's about to be humbled. Uh, that's, a, that's a biblical clue. If you see someone exalting themselves in the scripture, you just keep reading because it ain't going to be long before they are humbled. If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. That's exactly what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, in my great patience, I will stay my wrath and give you one more. What a benevolent. Bow down to my statue or die. <laughs> they play the music. Maybe you didn't hear the trumpet. Maybe, maybe you weren't clear on the instrument. They play the music again. Nope, they just stand there. <laughs> Don't you know it's coming to you? O king. You could throw us in the fire. Our God's able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing to your statue. He gets mad enough, he says, heat it up seven times hotter than it's supposed to be. I'm sure the workers are kind of like, not hot enough already? I mean, it's already hot enough to burn people. You want us to heat it more? Now, I'm sure they didn't take a thermometer and measure the temperature and say, okay, all right, right now it's at, it's at 500 degrees. We need to get it up to 3,500. They are finding every spare piece of wood, everything they could throw into that fire. It doesn't matter what it is. If it burns, it's going in there, baby, because we're making a bonfire. And when they get thrown in, they're bound up, they get thrown into the fire, and then Nebuchadnezzar says, wait a minute, didn't we throw three in there? Weren't they, weren't they tied up? I see them walking around, and there's four of them. One looks like a son of the gods. He's hyperlinking. John is taking that picture and says, remember that picture? I want you to see the same thing. Now, some of these churches are undergoing intense persecution. In Ephesus, if it's not already happening, it is soon to come. In a city like Ephesus, they are not going to put up with this band of Christians who are going around loving everybody, teaching that Jesus is the only Lord, that Caesar is not Lord. In a city like Ephesus, you better believe they are walking the line, towing, towing the line for the Romans. They are doing, they're doing everything they can. You saw the picture of the theater. That's a copycat from Rome. That temple for Artemis was an attempt to match Roman architecture in their city. They're, they want to be just like their bigger brother. They want to really, really show off how great they are. How similar they are to Rome. You, you don't think for a minute they're going to tolerate this kind of thing, do you? If it ain't come yet, it's about to come. These folks are going to be walking through the fire. And what is John's message to them? Here's the one who walks through the fire with you. Here's the one that is with you even in the midst of the chaos. Here's the one protecting you and present among you. This is what he says. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I see what you're doing. 
And for Ephesus, it's good. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. This is a church where you don't pull a fast one on them. Do you remember there was a, I think it was the Bereans. Paul comes and he preaches to them and they search the scriptures. They're like, is this correct? They pull out their scrolls and they look through them and they say, he's right. Yeah, here, here's what he's saying. This is exactly what God has already said. This lines up perfectly. They're testing him. They're trying him to see is he right. This is what this church does in Ephesus. They hear somebody that says they're an apostle. They says, what do you think about this? The guy starts talking and they're like, nope, sorry, that ain't right. That ain't gospel. Some churches have the problem that they will just let anybody teach whatever as long as it sounds pretty good. They don't care. That's not Ephesus. Ephesus is strong on doctrine. Man, they know their Bible. You can't pull a fast one on them. This is a church that has doctrine at the core of everything it does and they are teaching right. They and, and it's not just the teacher. It's not just the preacher. It's not just the Sunday school teacher. It's every single one of them. They're all over it. They're not letting this kind of stuff sit in. The, the early church had a problem with heresy. Part of the problem with heresy was uh, we just don't really quite know how to define it. And so as we're seeking to define it, some people put it in a way that seems okay, but it's not. Many of the heresies that the early church faced were misunderstandings of the truth. We're just off. It was either Christ was more man than God or more God than man. He didn't have a physical body. One of the heresies taught. Another heresy taught that God was, was, it's called modalism. God switches between father and son, like it's like flipping a switch. And he moves from this person to that person. And, 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 and he's, he's only one at a time but he kind of flips back and forth to what he needs to do. There were heresies that taught all sorts of things. Some people would take a portion of Scripture and would mark out all the things they disagreed with. They wouldn't take this one, they wouldn't take that one, but they'll take this book kind of halfway, except they'll, they'll erase all the things that they don't want, all the things that, they don't seem, that don't seem to be right to them. The heresies that came in the early church were hardly ever things that were so far out of left field that everybody knew they were wrong. They would be things that were kind of close, but not quite right. Ephesus was the kind of place that didn't happen. People were attentive. They listened carefully. They searched the scriptures, and they proved who was true and who was false. This is the kind of church that many people think have it all going on. These are the churches that stand firm. The churches, um, I can think of a few that have this sort of, have this sort of aura about them. I have a friend who was, uh, visiting in England, Ireland, and, and going all over the, the, the British Isles and for a vacation and making me jealous every time they post. Um, they went, yes, uh, earlier today, they went to All Souls Church. I don't know if you're familiar with that. All Souls Church at Langham Place is, was a place where John R.W. Stott preached for a long time. Very faithful preacher, man of God. Um, one of one of the one of the greatest preachers you've never heard of, if you've never heard of him. Uh, I, I'd highly encourage you look up his name and read some of the things that he's written. Um, but John R.W. Stott for a long time preached there and preached truth. 
in a church, in a denomination that has gone so far off the rails. He preached truth. And even today, that church still upholds truth. That's a good thing. We need more of those kinds of churches. He continues, I know, verse 3, that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. This is a church that is practicing discipline among themselves. They're not letting their members get away with junk, but they're also enduring patiently. They're under a heavy burden. Perhaps it's persecution. Perhaps it's not overt, state-driven persecution. But it's the kind of stuff that says, well, you're, you're one of those Christians. I'm just not going to do business with you. You're one of those Christians. Well, we're, we're not going to engage in civic activities with you. You're not allowed into this group, this guild. A lot of things were about the guilds, professional organizations. You can't get in if you're a Christian in many cases. These guys were cut off and they haven't grown weary. They remain faithful. What a testimony. I mean, this is the kind of church we want to be, right? This is the kind of church that we strive to be, that we teach the truth, we don't bear with evil, we don't allow people to get away with junk in our midst, but we also patiently endure the junk that we face from outside. Who wouldn't want to be that kind of church? I mean, right? Is that the kind of church we want to be? This is where you talk. I feel like I have to say that because I talk so much, you're just expecting me to continue. Is that the kind of church we want to be, church? Yes. And then he says, but I have this against you. Your virgin may have, you have abandoned your first love. This one has you have abandoned the love you had at first. There's some discussion. Is this talking about Jesus, like loving Christ? Or is this talking about loving each other, fellow believers? My answer is yes. The two go hand in hand, don't they? The problem with Ephesus is that they're so busy doing, they forgot why they do. They are so, so good at dispelling heresy, at determining what's true and false. They are so good at practicing discipline. They are so good at bearing under the weight of trials and hardships. Have they forgotten to love? That's not the kind of church we want to be. But it is a reminder because too often, and I I feel this particularly um, with myself, too often I am too worried about what I'm trying to do and I forget about the people that are around. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you love folks and you love folks and you love folks and you have to be remember what you're supposed to do because you're too busy loving folks. I'm not like that. I get caught up in what do we have to do. And the warning for me and people like me is that you can't forget love. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am as a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. You can be as good as you want to be at many different things. But if you don't have love, it's just not as effective, is it? God looked at the the Ephesian church and he saw some great works and wonderful things. A church that by all accounts should be at the one of, if not the best churches in the world at that time. They've got great preaching. They are living the life, making a difference in the community. 
but somehow love has gotten lost. Maybe it's with the burdens on your back. You forget to love just because you're trying to keep standing. Maybe it's from the, if, if you're like me, um, you think that everything wrong needs to be critiqued. And you get so lost in the critiquing that you forget the person. It's, it's a tough thing to do, to love the person and deal with the error. That's hard. And over time, Ephesus is toward getting it right. Sometimes losing the love that's so necessary. At one point in the book of Ephesians, is back. Let me, I'm flipping over to it. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul is talking to them. All right, it's chapter 2. No? Where is it? <laughs> I'm sorry. There we go. He's talking about the fact that we as a body of Christ ought to be united together. And he says, verse 11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. They had gotten that right. They were no longer children. They were mature in their faith. But where they had left off, at the end of verse 14, they didn't continue. They lost the love and that prevented verse 15 from being a reality. Rather, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from which the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That was not a reality in Ephesus because they were so focused on the first part that they missed the love. Oh, they had it. This was not a church that was founded on the principles of, of deep doctrine and, and we are going to be intellectuals and, and we're not going to get messed up in all that mushy business that so many folks run awry with. There are so many churches that, that will preach love, 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 and they never preach the source of that love. They never preach that love taking a Savior and putting Him on a cross to die for our sins. They never preach the need for us to repent from those sins and to trust in Christ. It's all love, 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 love. God loves you. They didn't want to get into that and they ran to the opposite extreme where they forgot love altogether. They forgot to love the one whom they were serving. And they forgot to love each other. But you need both. And so Jesus tells this church, verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. I think what he's saying here is to repent of losing love, but to keep doing what you've been doing. Just add love in. Because the works they were doing were great but they had lost the reason to do. You know, there comes a time in a church where we've got to remember why we do what we do. And that's what we're 
That's what we're looking at in Ephesus. They had forgotten why. And I'm going to tell you something you can do for a long time without a why, but it won't do much good. You really want to make a difference, church? You need a why. You really want to see your business prosper, business owners? You need a why. Why do you do what you do? You really want to see your team succeed, coaches? or You, you need a why. Maybe, maybe you're, the, you're the type that you're like, well, I don't really have any of those kinds of things. I'm not really in charge of anything. You want to see your family flourish? You need a why. You see, without a why, it's just motion. There are two things that we talk about when we talk about wind. We talk about how hard it's blowing, the force of the wind, how fast it's going. We talk about which way it's coming from. The why is where it's coming from. You can have, if you, can you imagine a 100 mile per hour wind coming from nowhere? No. It's got to come from somewhere. Otherwise, it ain't wind. That's what I'm saying, church. We need a why. We need somewhere we are coming from. Why are we doing what we're doing? I believe the reason we do what we do is because of Christ's love for us. I believe the reason that we do the things that we do is not so we'll have right doctrine. It's not so that we will be a pillar of the community. It's not so that people will look at us and say, wow, how nice they are. What a nice roof they have on their building. All this kind of stuff. It's so that the love of Christ can be made perfected in us. Our why is Him. I work for a company that puts in their mission statement. Their mission statement starts with the words, we will glorify God by... You may not know that. Chick-fil-A puts it in the corporate mission statement. We will glorify God by... And then they, then they lay out their vision. You know why it comes first? Because it needs to. Otherwise, the vision doesn't come from anywhere. Y'all, as a church, we need to know our why. why do we... And I'm going to tell you something. I know our why. I know our why. We do what we do because God loves us. And that love is so overwhelming that we have to do. We have to share. We have to go. We have to mature in our faith. That's our why. Because of who God is and what He has done, it has made a difference in the way that we live our lives. That's our why. Everything else that we do flows from that why. The church of Ephesus had forgotten their why. Don't forget your why, church. Don't forget it. Because everything that we do stems from it. And if we forget our why, we may as well not do it anymore. And that's what he tells this church. Repent. Repent of the things you've done? No. Repent for forgetting why you do them. Change your ways and remember the love. Remember the why that has empowered all of these works. He doesn't tell them to stop having good doctrine. He doesn't tell them to stop practicing church discipline. He doesn't tell them to quit bearing under the burdens and not growing weary. He doesn't tell them those things. Stop doing those things. He tells them get back to love. Get back to the why. Because if you don't, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You want to know what will happen if you forget your why? 
You won't be at church anymore. Oh, you may still meet. You may still have services. You may still call yourself a church. Don't forget your why. Yet this you have. He says it's not all bad news. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know exactly what the Nicolaitans were teaching. Some think it was basically a, a live however you want. God's forgiven you, so you don't really have to have any standards kind of a lifestyle. I don't know. I'm not sure about that. But I do know this. They weren't putting up with it. And God says, me too, I don't put up with it either. This is a church that's doing great work, needs its why. Perhaps the message from Ephesus is, don't forget your why. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How many of you have ears? Here. Listen to what God's saying. To the one who conquers, if you do this, if you listen to what I've told you, and you take it to heart, you put it into practice, you do the things that I'm telling you to do, you recover your why, and you remain faithful in your endurance, remain faithful in your your focus on the truth, you remain faithful in your works, to the one who conquers, excuse me, the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. One of the symbols of the, the, the cult practice of Artemis was this, this tree. It was a symbol that was used all throughout the temple for Artemis. It was the, the, the fruit of the tree was used for all sorts of different rituals and practices. He says, you want a real tree? I've got a real tree for the conqueror. The tree of life. Now, tree of life. Wasn't that the one, wasn't that the one that Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden so they wouldn't eat from after they ate from the tree of knowing good and evil. Isn't that the one that God put the angel blazing fire, four heads looking in all the directions with the sword to block the way to the tree of life? Wasn't that that tree? That tree that God could not let humans get to? Yeah, it's that tree. It's that tree. He says, when you conquer, when you're faithful, in love and in works, you'll get to eat from that tree. I will restore you to the place where you were before. Not just, not just as a church, but as humanity. I will restore the human race. Believers who put their hope in Christ, who love Him and who serve Him, I will restore you to the tree of life. And you'll be able to eat from its fruit again. Y'all don't look like you get it. Some of y'all are like. Y'all, that's good news. This is God taking what is wrong and making it right. And glory, hallelujah, we're going to be able to experience it. We're going to be there in God's paradise, eating from his tree. Shouting praise the whole way. And you know what? This is a tree, we'll learn about a little bit later in Revelation. This is a tree that doesn't just bear one fruit. It bears like 12 different fruits. Like every month it's a whole new fruit. I'm looking forward to that. How much variety can you get out of one tree? I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of stuff comes out of that tree. And you know it's going to be good. You know it is. 
I like fruit anyway, so I'm really excited about this tree. Hopefully broccoli doesn't grow unless it has cheese on it. Y'all, God will one day make everything right. In the meantime, we've got to keep our why. Because if you lose your why, you also lose your because. If you lose the thing that drives what you do, you'll also lose the things you do. You'll lose who you are. Hear the word to Ephesus. Keep your love. Keep your why. And do the good stuff too. Father, I pray that we would not lose our why. I pray that we would love you so hotly, so intently, so dearly that we would let nothing stop us from loving you, from obeying you, from serving you. God, I know that in some cases we'll have to endure persecution. In some cases we'll have to be ostracized because in some cases it may make life just really difficult. We may not understand everything that's going on or why it's happening in that moment. God, I pray you are why. Keep it fresh. Remind us that we love because you first loved us. Remind us that you showed your love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Remind us of the why, the love that you have for us and that we return to you. Remind us of Jesus' call to obey the greatest commandment. Love you. Love you with everything. Love you with everything else. And if there's anything left, love you with that too. With all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, with all of our strength. And then to show that same sort of love to the guy next to us, to the person who lives by us, to the person that we encounter. Those who are near. Father, I pray that we would love you and love others that we'd never lose that why. Lord, help us to honor you in our works, but even more than that, to honor you in our love, so that one day we can snack from the fruit of the tree of life in your presence, in your praise. Until that day comes, Lord, help us. Be in our midst. Hold us in your hand. Don't let us forget our why. Lord, we love you. Help us love you more. And show that love to us. In Jesus' name.